It's worth celebrating. I mean, we have a very celebratory, festive feel today, and rightfully so, because we've got something to celebrate. The greatest thing to celebrate that there ever was, that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that death, the greatest enemy of us all, the thing that eventually overpowers every single one of us and gets the best of us, is not the end of the story anymore, thanks to Jesus. So we're celebrating, and it's worth celebrating, I think, pretty extravagantly, but I would also say that it is worth celebrating this news, not just today, but every day. Every day, not just on Easter Sunday, is a good day to celebrate the resurrection. I wonder how we do that, though, and think about it. Uh, there's some things we do, particularly on Easter, that we probably don't do every day. We don't gather like this every day in a church to sing songs. When we do, uh, it's, it's always good, but it's not quite, you know, we don't have 11 people up here and the, and the Hammond organ and all this stuff. Um, we're pulling out all the stops for Easter. Um, later today, I'll visit Liz's family and my Italian father-in-law will feed me until I can hardly breathe. And I, I should not do that every day. And there's probably a level of candy consumption happening for some young and not so young people that, that definitely shouldn't happen every day. But how do we celebrate the resurrection every day? Because this is news worth celebrating all the time. And I want to look actually to the scripture that was read to us earlier today for some clues about how Jesus would have us celebrate his resurrection every day, not just here, uh, but here on out. It was a while back, Valerie read to us from Matthew 28. We'll look back at it. It's at page 706 in most of the Bibles that are provided for you if you want to follow along. But Matthew 28 is the Gospel of Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus and some interactions afterwards. Now, there are four Gospels, and a lot of stuff happened after Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, we're told that Jesus was around for 40 days, appearing to many people, he said, and did a lot of things. So none of the Gospels are attempting to be an exhaustive account of everything that he did and said, but each of them highlights some especially important interactions that he had that, that we have now uh, to know. And Matthew highlights some. In what we saw, I'll walk through it real quickly, we saw a group of women arrive at the tomb expecting to find Jesus there. He'd been buried there in a tomb, and like anyone else, they thought he would still be there, but he was not. And they encountered an angel who then told them, he's not here, he's somewhere else. And, and they were told to go and tell people, the first witnesses ever to the resurrected Jesus, this group of women. Then we see some powers that be uh, at the time, conspiring to put an end to this really quickly, feeling threatened by this news and coming up quickly with an alternative explanation so it doesn't get out of hand, um, and, and trying their best to, to squelch this thing before it, before it really starts. And then, at the end, this is what I'll read, we have an interaction that Jesus has with his disciples, the one that Matthew records. And he says not a lot of words to them here, but some really important ones, and I think they give us some clues into how to celebrate resurrection every day. So I'll start in verse 18 of Matthew 28. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So a few clues into how to celebrate resurrection in an ongoing way. Uh, in, in the Gospels, this thing happens, this crazy event, and people are trying to make sense of it and figure out, what does this mean? Jesus is alive. What, what do we do with this? What does this mean? 
And this is where Jesus tells people what it means. And the key thing is here in verse 18 when he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's interpreting this event for us. This is actually what it means now. It's not just like a nice ending, a really nice guy whose story turned out well, but actually his defeat of death, his resurrection, is a demonstration that he overpowered the most powerful thing uh, that comes against us and so has authority over death itself and by extension over anything else in heaven and on earth. He's displayed that, and he wants it to make it known here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so, I think to really celebrate the resurrection as Jesus would have us do it is to celebrate, actually, Jesus' authority. To celebrate his authority. That may make some of us take a step back. I mean, you know, celebrate, like, new life and hope and, and, and things like that. Sure, oh, celebrate authority. We're not always really into that. And, and people have not really been into authority for a long time. The Bible says that actually goes way back to the, to the very, very beginning when human beings said to God, you're not the boss of me. And from there, everything uh, wicked, broken, and destructive in our world kind of spiraled out from there, from that choice to say to God, you're not the boss of me. But Jesus uh, comes to us resurrected, having triumphed over death, inviting us to say, you are the boss of me. You are the boss of me. And, and that can be tough for some of us, I know. And I think this is actually the most universal and timeless barrier to people celebrating the resurrection in our lives, this call to celebrate his authority. There have been a lot of reasons people don't celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Some of them are kind of culturally bound or specific to different times and places. One that I read about recently uh, was in the second century. There was a Greek philosopher named Celsus who wrote one of the first really... Uh, scathing diatribes against Christianity and, and trying to debunk it and, and prove that it was nonsense. One of the things that he pointed to that we see in our, our scripture today was actually the testimony of the women. And he said, how could rational men be expected to believe the, the testimony of a, quote, hysterical female? Whew. Now, I've heard a lot of uh, objections to Christianity. I haven't heard that one lately. Thank God. And I hope I never do. You know, though, this thing is nonsense because women say, say it's true. Um, I hope I never hear that. But that actually played really well back then. There's a reason he said that, because it appealed to a misogynistic culture in which the testimony of women was not considered valid and, and that a woman's word was not a good source to attest to truth. And so he went there. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, each of the four Gospels highlight different aspects of Jesus' life after the resurrection. But one thing they all have crystal clear in common is that it was women who were there first, who saw it first, and who told about it first. And there's only one reason that it would be that way. is because that's what happened. It's the only reason that they would go out of their way to write such a thing in that time and place. Because it's not good propaganda for them, but that's what happened, and so that's what is testified to. Uh, so that's kind of a, a culturally bound objection to the resurrection. Another one that's more recent, I think, is just the idea that, look, things like this just don't happen, we, where we can't, we can't prove it. We can't empirically prove by the scientific method that a person can come back to life from the dead. That, that requires some kind of supernatural, some kind of miraculous thing that our, our reason uh, can't definitively prove. Uh, now, people have always found the resurrection kind of 
like overwhelming and, and crazy. But actually, this, this particular way of coming at it, that we can't demonstrate or prove it with our, our reason or our empirical research, that's actually kind of a cultural thing, too. It's pretty recent, and it's pretty Western for the most part. And in the scheme of things, all throughout time and, and cultures in world history, it's a little more the exception than the rule to think that we can only count as true what we can prove and demonstrate and, and get our minds around. Uh, most people throughout history have had some openness to the supernatural, to the miraculous, or to the idea that there could be truth beyond our ability to understand or wrap our minds around. Now, these questions are real, though, if you do have kind of a, a skeptical mind along the lines of, like, is it, could I really be a reasonable, smart person and believe in the resurrection? I believe you can, and a lot of really good stuff has been written, a lot of good resources out there. If you really want to go looking for them, I think you can find that there is actually great evidence for the resurrection and that it is a reasonable thing to believe. But anyway, it, it's still kind of a culturally bound thing that's, that people would, would dismiss it for these reasons. But for the reason of Jesus' authority in our lives, I think all people from all time, all cultures have, have taken, you know, just take a step back at this. We see it in the passage here, the powers that be, were referred to the chief priests and Roman soldiers conspiring together. The chief priests were people whose livelihood was bound up in the religious system of a temple where people would bring sacrifices to offer in reparation for their sins, to, to provide atonement for their sins and find forgiveness. And Jesus is here now saying, actually, my sacrifice on the cross is it, and that stuff is no longer necessary anymore for the forgiveness of sins. That was pretty threatening news to someone whose, whose livelihood and heritage was bound up in that system. We also see Roman soldiers at work here, too, and the governor. Uh, and really, the, the Christian faith spread under the shadow of the greatest superpower in the world up to that time, the Roman Empire. And its persecution of that movement was brutal because it was a threat, a threat to the greatest power in the world. In Acts chapter 17, Christians are accused of this. It says, they are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. The claim that there's another king, a greater and supreme authority in the world, has always rubbed people the wrong way. It's rubbed people in power the wrong way, as it continues to do. Anyone with power and authority in our world now tends not to like to have that challenged or questioned. But even in our own lives, like, we may love to celebrate Jesus' power and authority over death, over other oppressive forces and systems, structures, people, rulers in the world, that all sounds pretty good. But what about our own lives? If all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, then he's claiming some kind of authority in our own lives. And that, I think, is actually something to celebrate. I don't mean this to sound like a bummer or a drag, because it's not. It's actually quite a wonderful thing to live under the authority of Jesus. It's a freeing thing. It's where life and wholeness and freedom is ultimately to be found, I believe. Anyone who is in recovery from addiction will tell you the point at which things begin to turn around, they find freedom and healing and deliverance is the point at which they say, I can no longer run my life and I should not be running my life and I need to submit my will to, the power, to a power greater than myself to restore me to sanity. Those of you who get that, you get you get it for all of us, for all people, that real freedom, real life is to be found at the point where we stop running our own lives, stop trying to be the boss of our soul, the captain of our fate, and submit to a power greater than ourselves. That's actually tremendously freeing. So we don't have to always 
wonder and, and wander and be lost and wondering which way to go because there's someone telling us which way to go and there's someone who always knows better than we do in every given situation. That's tremendously freeing, life-giving, I've found at least. And so I think this is a good news. This is something worth celebrating. We celebrate Jesus' authority over death, over oppression, over all sorts of evil, and over our very own lives. We can celebrate his resurrection every day by choosing to, to say, you're the boss of me. And if I've got competing allegiances in my life, you know, one voice over here of someone who died and rose again and one voice over here of someone who didn't, choose the one who did. <laughs> Listen to that one. Celebrate his authority. A second way related to this that we can celebrate the resurrection in an ongoing way is to celebrate with your whole life. Celebrate with your whole life, with, with all of who we are. This is what Jesus kind of calls for here. He says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So baptism is, is kind of a whole life given over to Jesus. Again, I'll make a plug. We have the opportunity to be baptized next week. If, if this is something that God is putting on your heart and you want to publicly say yes to Jesus as you haven't before, we do it in a way that involves dunking underwater. There's a tank back there. Because the Greek word baptizo actually means to immerse. And what Jesus is saying here is that our lives to be immersed under the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We give up all of who we are into his hands, into his care. We don't hold back pieces for ourselves, but we, we kind of fully give ourselves to him, baptized in his name. And he says, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Now, the things that Jesus taught extend to every area of life. So again, we celebrate the resurrection by celebrating it with our whole lives, not just by coming to church, not just by specifically religious activities, but in everything that we do is an opportunity to live out this wonderful story. And I'm going to make another shameless plug along these lines. But next week at The Journey, we're beginning a new sermon series, an eight-week series called Work Matters, How Your Vocation Fits into God's Plan for Your Life. By vocation, that certainly includes work that we do for pay, but also the various things that God calls us to do on a day-to-day -day basis. This is like the stuff that life is made of. And this is really where the rubber meets the road. Do we celebrate the resurrection on a few select days out of the year, or do we try to let it form our whole life in everything that we do? And, and if not work, then where? And I believe that God's got a lot to say to us in the coming eight weeks about this. I'm really excited for it. Most of you don't have work like I do that's directly tied to doing church, but I would submit to you that Jesus cares every bit, about, every bit as much about the work you do as about the work I do. And he's got a lot to say. So celebrate, the, celebrate Jesus by continuing to learn how he wants to shape and form and be present in all of your life, day to day, everything that we do. A third way we can celebrate the resurrection is to tell others. Tell others this good news. Good news is meant to be shared, meant to be told. That's what people do when exciting things happen in life. You tell other people about it. It's just the natural thing to do. This past week, my son got a new basketball hoop at the house, and even though it was school vacation week, I'm pretty sure the whole school knows about it already because there are ways to let it be known. 
like you, something good happens, you share about it, you tell about it, you want other people to know. Well, this, people, is the greatest news, again, that has ever happened in the history of the world that someone has risen from the dead and overcome our greatest foe. It's meant to be told. And that really is the only way people have ever come to know about it. God, God set it up so that in light of his coming, other people tell other people about it. And now there's a church of, I don't know, billions worldwide throughout centuries, generations, all based on the testimony of people telling other people. That's really how it works. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This passage has traditionally been um, talked about in the context of, of going places, maybe missionaries traveling far and wide to take the good news of Jesus to people who've never heard it before. But I'm telling you, you don't have to go anywhere to start telling this story. Within this block are people who need to know the good news about the resurrection. Everywhere we go, as we go, we can let this story be known. It's great news, and, and it's not common knowledge. No, it really isn't. A couple of years ago, I was on a spring break trip. The college ministry I work with, InterVarsity, takes groups of students down to do disaster relief work over spring break. We take groups of Christian students and skeptical students to engage with questions of pain, suffering, and faith. And one morning, a, a student came to our, our staff member and was really troubled. He said, hey, I got to talk to you because last night I, I heard this rumor that Jesus rose from the dead. Is that true? Is that true? This is just some guy going to college in New England. It's not, it's not far away. It's not common knowledge. It's not common knowledge. Some people have no idea that this actually happened, that there has been in history a moment where someone actually was dead and then rose again. A lot of people still don't know that. Or some people see it as maybe just a fable or a myth or a fairy tale that's inspiring, but, but not anything real with any real implications. It's a story that needs to be told. And who can tell it? It's anybody. Anybody. You don't have to have advanced degrees, theology, anything like that. These first witnesses, first Jesus' disciples, were uneducated, ordinary, unschooled people given this message. And the women who arrived at the tomb, not, not credible witnesses in court. Mary Magdalene is the one who's kind of front and center here. She was one who had a reputation as living an immoral life, and had had seven demons cast out of her. So people probably thought of her. She had a reputation as, as a person who wasn't even in her right mind. These are the people Jesus entrusts his message to. So what disqualifies you? Nothing. You've got this story to tell. It's meant to be told. Take it from here, and that way you celebrate the resurrection. The kids actually said it great a while ago in the song. There is a need for all the world to know his love. They know it as we tell them and as we show them. I love that we're, some of us are going out to, to Main South after this to take our Easter celebration into, onto Main Street to demonstrate and to tell of the good news of Jesus in that community. It's beautiful. Finally, one last way I think we can celebrate the resurrection every day is to celebrate Jesus' presence. Not only to celebrate his authority, but celebrate his presence, that he is a God who is present with us. The last words he, he says here that are recorded are so beautiful. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. With you always. This, 
Jesus, who was introduced at the beginning of Matthew's gospel as Emmanuel, God with us. And he wasn't just with us for a little while, but with us always, now by his spirit, is with us and present everywhere that we go. In every situation that we might find ourselves in, Jesus is present. He's not a God who's left in a grave somewhere, certainly. We celebrated that today. Nor is he someone who's far off and barking orders at us from a distance or vague and and looking for us to kind of somehow find him. But he's present. He is with us always, he promises. It's a beautiful thing. And we can celebrate that, celebrate his presence in our lives in every moment, every, every day, in a lot of different ways. We can celebrate simply by giving thanks to him for things in our lives that are good, that are blessings, things that we're thankful for. The, dis- the act of praying together at, at mealtimes, praying at mealtimes, the simple act of saying, oh, I celebrate, Lord, that you're present in my life, that you've provided for me in this way, this tangible way. Thank him for other things. We can celebrate his presence by just turning and thanking him for being present and active and at work in our lives. We can celebrate his presence by turning to him when we're in pain, when we're in trouble, when we're scared, and when we're overwhelmed. Turning to him for help rather than than scrambling, feeling like it's all on us to figure out, to fix, but actually turning to a God who's present with us in our pain, in our confusion, in our fear. We can turn to him and celebrate his presence in those moments as well. We can celebrate his presence by resting in his presence when we're anxious, restless people who are worried and concerned. We can rest in his presence with us, that we're not alone. There's actually not a moment that goes by where we are truly alone. Even when people leave us, when we experience loss, those closest to us, we're not alone. Jesus is present with us always to the end of the age. I can be a little slow to celebrate his presence, I admit. When, I'm, when things go well, I like to take credit. When things are going poorly, when I'm scared, when I'm anxious, I, I tend to scramble and figure, well, ask, what do I have to do? And not rest in his presence, not turn to him. But the turnaround time is getting quicker. And I think the longer we walk with Jesus and know him, the turnaround time does get quicker. We're, we're quicker to thank him, quicker to turn to him, and cry to him, quicker to rest in his presence, because over time he proves to us that he really is with us always, in everything, that there is no place we go, no situation we're in, even if we're not aware of his presence with us, even if we're not feeling it or conscious of it, he's with us always. Although I suppose there is one place where you won't find Jesus, and that is in the grave where he was laid. Wrapped up in cloths like anyone else and as dead as anyone who's died has ever been dead before, and the women showed up naturally looking for him there, but were told, oh, he's not there. He's somewhere else. And you won't find him there either, but there is no place where you will find yourself where he is not already there. He is with us always to the very end of the age, and I think that is worth celebrating as well. So let us, you know, we're going to sing a couple more songs, but I want to encourage us to take our resurrection celebration with us out of this place into everything that we do and everywhere that we are because Jesus will be there, is there, and promises to always be there. Let's pray together.